Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Deepo Faloyan. He is senior editor of Global News at Vice. His writing has a specific focus on race, culture, and identity across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. He was born in Chicago, raised in Nigeria, and now lives in London. His debut book, Africa is Not a Country, is a comprehensive study on modern Africa, which pushes back against harmful stereotypes to tell the real story of a diverse continent, its history and thriving cultures and communities. Deepa Falone, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you so much for having me. So, Africa. Yes. (laughs) That great expanse. That great expanse that people do just tend to lump together is, in fact, either 53 or 54 countries, depending on where one stands on South Sudan. In this book, it's 54. It is 54 in this context, yes. And it's just, I mean, what you're really doing is reinforcing this thing that if you are from, say, Botswana, Mm -hmm. you could not be further removed from the people of South Sudan than if you were Belgian and Chinese. Yes, absolutely. The experiences are so vast and so specific. And I think that's the thing that for me is incredibly unfortunate that people just don't recognise how just incredibly complicated and incredibly sort of nuanced and rich so many different cultures are across the continent. You know, you mentioned about someone from Botswana or South Sudan, even within Nigeria, you know, I consider my family, we are very much city folk. We love the the chaos of traffic and, and, you know, being lumped with millions of people all tightly packed together. You know, I have cousins who are from countryside in the rural areas of Nigeria, and they are very different in terms of kind of a lot of the traditions that we sort of value the most. And I think for a lot of people, they see, you know, Africans as just being rural people mm. who spend their times, you know, wandering the lands. Fighting you, off lions. Fighting off lions <laughs> and, you know, occasionally trying to run away from, you know, dictators in four by four jeeps, you know, who are trying to hunt you down, you yeah. know. And, I, and I, you know, it is, it's just so much more than that. And I think it's so, you know, crucial for people to understand that. Completely. So let's start with your own background, because mm-hmm. you are Igbo, but you're also uh, Yoruba. Yoruba, yes, yes. My dad's side are Yoruba. My mum's side are Igbo. Nigeria is, there are three major tribes, cultures within Nigeria. The houses. Can I just stop you there? Yeah. Can we say tribes? I think it sort of, it depends. I'm generally kind of okay. I would normally sort of say ethnic groups, yeah. preferably. There are groups who happily consider themselves to be sort of tribal in, t- in terms of their histories and, and in the way, but... I would sort of lean towards either kind of tribal groups or ethnic groups, uh, depending on kind of direct translations of local languages. But yeah, there are there are three major ethnic groups within Nigeria, the Hausas, the Yorubas and the Igbos. Um, so my parents are, my mum's side are Igbos, my dad's are Yorubas. And even, you know, within that and the history of Nigeria, you know, that that has brought up kind of a lot of, not, you know, necessarily within our family, but also, you know, wider across lots of other families, you know, that has a huge amount of complex histories in terms of, how those three groups, you know, are trying to come together to govern a very, very vast, complicated country. Mm. And of course, one of the problems, not only with Nigeria, but indeed with the, with the whole of the continent, is that those countries are false borders. Yeah, they're entirely made up. It's something that, you know, growing up, I've always had a good idea about. But in researching this book, it's really brought to the fore that, you know, these are just entirely artificial creations. The colonial powers came and they just drew straight lines. They're about 30% of 
African borders are just straight lines, head to toe. And, you know, anyone who, if you ask probably a child to design a border, you know, they would try and group people together. They'd go around mountain ranges. They will ask, you know, who speaks the same languages, who worships the same gods. And they would try and make sure, that, okay, all those people can come together to be a country. But the colonial powers didn't do that. Mm. You know, they didn't have the will, their own self-imposed deadlines. So they just invented these nations pretty much out of nothing and then said, you know, go on and try and make it work. And that's exactly what these countries have been trying to do in such a short period of time. Absolutely. I mean, let's go back then to the Great Scramble for Africa. And I mean, one of of the the main casualties, if you like, is not even from a national power, but from an individual. And here, of course, I'm talking about the Congo and King Leopold. Yes. After the Berlin Conference, that was the first sort of nation, I guess, that was created. And, And King Leopold had decided that he wanted powers that he could not enjoy in Belgium. And so the the other members of the Berlin Conference sort of gave him this 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 piece of land and said, you know, you should govern it. And very quickly, he realised it was incredibly expensive to govern it. And so he just tried his hardest to extract as much from this piece of land as possible. And the devastation and the damage that he caused, about, you know, half the population were murdered in a very short period of time, just trying to extract rubber and as, as, as much as much sort of resources as possible from these people who were previously free, vast expanse of land that is about sort of 70 times bigger than Belgium, and the devastation he sort of wrought. And the other powers, the colonial powers, probably should have looked at this and said, this doesn't seem right to us. But everyone sort of said, you know, carry on. And Belgium only really jumped in when they realised that it was probably a bit too expensive to continue mm. operating. But yeah, the, the the devastation and the damage that he caused um, in such a short period of time really set the tone for what would be a scramble for the continent. Mm. And of course, the, the problems within the Congo resonate today. Uh, it went on to, to Belgian hands, but then the fact that it is such a huge country, it, it borders so many, I think it's nine other countries, countries yeah. it, it borders. And you look at what has happened there and the mineral extraction, the ongoing wars, I mean, yeah. there's still huge military presence from other parts of Africa in the Congo, destabilising great swathes of the country and, it, and the continent. Yeah, it, it's astonishing. And there are just, when you research it, when you understand it, there is a direct line from from what was done post the Berlin Conference and, you know, where we are today. Mm. The damage, the the battle for people to understand their, their own identity, the identity of their neighbours, to try and create something out of this, what is effectively nothing, you know. The colonial powers didn't really give them anything to work with. Yeah. Um, you know, people can say, oh, there are resources, you know, well... Those resources inspire a huge amount of greed in people. They inspire, if anything, more reasons for people within a single ethnic group to want to keep and hoard for their own ethnic group because in many cases people don't understand the languages that their fellow countrymen even speak. Mm. Um, And I think that is one of the things that, you know, when people start to understand the damage that all this caused, then they they will have a better relationship with the continent as a whole. Yeah. So, of course, then independence starts to come with Ghana in the the 60s and and kind of gradually rolls out Mm -hmm. across Africa. And people seem to be, as you said, oh, we'll we'll leave it to to you now, but it's Zambian independence. Mm -hmm. There were three university graduates in the country. How on earth is anybody expected to run a country when they've been given no opportunity to learn how to do it? Absolutely. And as I talk about in in the chapter about dictatorships and democracy and that relationship, it, it, what you ended up happening was that those who fought for the country 
were the ones who were then given the first opportunities to run the countries. And often these were military men who were far better suited to the battlefield than they were to, you know, the state house. And I think that at that moment, you had this sort of incredibly complicated dynamic within most countries where everyone suddenly stops for a moment, looks around and and then it sort of hits them. You know, what is this? What are we? And this was in the 60s. You know, this wasn't in the 1720s. This, this was just the other day. My parents are older than the country that they were born in. Yeah. And the world is moving on. They are trying to exist within a world that is making huge leaps in technology and science. And, and you can't be left behind. You know, you need to get moving. And other countries are starting to recognize that there is, you know, these countries are vulnerable and that these countries, their allegiances are up for up for play and so you know western powers are uh, landing in these countries to you know to to strike deals and to make money to to gain political advantages you know especially as we saw during the during the cold war and in all those sort of contexts so so much on the ground was at play and what a lot of these countries needed was you know to have a real moment whether it's five years of or 10 years even up to now nigeria could do with you know a constitutional congress where everyone just stops for a moment and and thinks but that opportunity has never really been there for the continent everyone mm. has just had to carry on mm. and keep moving let's let's hone in then on an example and obviously i'm going to choose my own home Absolutely. Uh, zimbabwe because you go into that in in some detail mm-hmm. and i just really wanted you to explain to to our listeners how it evolved and how it went so badly wrong Yes. I mean, you know, I I start the chapter by talking about Dylan Roof, who, you know, committed one of the worst racial atrocities in America, where he, you know, killed multiple black people who were worshipping in a church in southern US. And he was someone who worshipped what he called, he considered himself the last Rhodesian. And that harks back to Rhodesia which was what Zimbabwe was before it became Zimbabwe. And it was governed by Ian Smith. And Ian Smith basically ran, was one of of all kind of a lot of the colonial powers, one of the most racist sort of colonial leaders of the time. And he was, you know, he was he was so racist that even the British said, you know, you might, you should really pull back here. But Ian Smith was like, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, I'm one of you, you're one of us, like, you aren't going to come and fight us. So, you know, he he worked incredibly hard to maintain was an incredibly racist rule over over Rhodesia. And so from that created decades of struggle and of, of, of fight of a real kind of passionate attempt by black Rhodesians to fight for their independence. And that produced men like Robert Mugabe, who was, you know, spent some time outside of the country, came back into the country and fought and fought and fought for their nations. And what you then have are as I mentioned earlier, sort of military men who are struggling for the freedoms of their country. They're, you know, taking all kinds of losses. You know, they, they've witnessed many of their kin sort of murdered and killed and put into prison. And and that creates within themselves this kind of desperation for vengeance at some point. And at some point, you know, you, you can't hold off independence forever and they eventually get what they want. But by the time they get what they want, they are filled with such anger and you know, frustration and bitterness, understandably, understandably yeah. towards the towards the British. And, you know, the same dynamic played out across large parts of the continent where independence comes and those who fought for the country, like Robert Mugabe, are the ones who are given the first chance to run their countries. And that dynamic plays out in his rule throughout his time. You know, you have a choice. You can either try and move on 
or you can try and get what you believe is yours. Robert Mugabe chose the path of we are going to take what we believe is ours. And so trying to understand that there is a history that has played a part into what then would follow. You know, the land grabs, the the constant fights, the, the, the bitterness towards the West, all that stuff, there is a context to it. There is a history to it. And at no point do you have to come on the side of, you know, who's right and who's wrong overall in the grand picture, but just to understand where where the vengeance and that frustration and that bitterness and that anger comes from. And often, you know, your own countrymen aren't really served by seeing out that bitterness, seeing out that anger, but understanding that broader context and the idea of, you know, what actually led to those moments is really, really important, mm. you know. And a great example is, you know, you see in South Africa, you see someone like Nelson Mandela who chose a different path. He chose a path of, you know, a peace, of reconciliation. And he, you know, rightly for many reasons, has been heralded as a hero by the Western world. There are still incredible amount of challenges within South Africa for black South Africans to try and gain a sense of equality within their own nation up until this day. These are the sort of the dynamics that comes from decades of white supremacy playing out into a country. Mm. Um, and I think that it's so important that people understand that rather than, you know, trying to paint these singular stories. Absolutely. They are much more complex. It's incredibly complicated. Uh, and the book really isn't about this, but I wonder about the role of white Africans, mm-hmm. people like me, mm-hmm. who were born under Smith's regime. Mm-hmm. My parents were very liberal. They they had yeah. no truck with him. Mm-hmm. However, both my father and my brother were conscripted into mm-hmm. the Rhodesian army. Wow. My sister was killed by the Rhodesian army oh, wow. in, in a kind of friendly fire type mm. incident. And then I and my brother have both been banned from the country. We're enemies of the state for opposing Mugabe's yeah. regime, but not in a Smith-defending mm-hmm. way. Yeah, in yeah. A, it, we were uh, opposing... The, the, Mugabe, his genocide, his corruption, and and so on. And so just within that microcosm Mm. of one family, and now living here uh, and kind of assimilating, pretending to be British, am I getting away with it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can see just how complex this is. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's so incredible that you've, the way you've just said that, it's another reminder of just how recent this history is, Mm. you know, how, how recent all this is. And I think that, everybody has sort of contributed to what these modern countries are. You know, we all have a role and that goes from in Zimbabwe case, you know, white Africans, black Africans, you know, everyone kind of has to recognize, understand that that they have a part to play. These issues are not going to get any simpler with time. You know, they are incredibly complicated. And I think that everyone has to recognize that they play a huge role. That's that's what that's what comes from having incredibly young nations. Yeah. You yeah. know, everyone you can't say, oh, this was old history, this was a long time ago. It really isn't. You know, everything that has played out in the history of an independent Nigeria has played out in my parents' lifetime. Yeah. Um, and I think that everyone, you know, regardless of your history, really needs to engage with their countries and e- even the way in which the history of Nigeria and the history of South Africa, it is so very different. You know, the relationship between the British, in our case, weren't so interested in living in West Africa. Mm. It was incredibly hot mosquitoes would would really get at you you know they really didn't want you know they wanted a certain distance that distance led to the british then thinking to themselves right who can we get within these countries to do our work for Mm -hmm. us and they picked you know i can say the worst amongst us you know the most corrupt the ones who are slick to a bribe the Mm -hmm. ones who were willing to do whatever it you know whatever the british wanted them to do many of these people again are still knocking around (laughs) they're still about this isn't you know our founding fathers are 
at events that you go to, you know, it can still be incredibly shocking. You know, my sister was, you know, recently at a wedding and she texted the family being like, oh, the former Nigerian head of state just there, you know, sat there in the corner quietly. And it, and these things, it's incredibly surreal to think, you know, these people you read in history books as, you know, the founding fathers of your nation and who they had such a huge impact on what your nation is today. Yeah. You know, and they're not just there in the history books, they're there in the corner of a wedding that you're at. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's incredibly strange. Uh, You talk about white saviour complex and I think this is an incredibly important chapter and I think before we we go into that in detail it's Mm -hmm. important to acknowledge uh, Binyavanga. Yes. So tell us about his piece How to Write About Africa because that was just, this was published in Granta and it was fantastic and it provoked a huge response across the world and I'm assuming had quite a lot of um, inspiration yeah. for you in from where this book comes from. Absolutely. It's it's pitch perfect. The grant editor who commissioned the piece is actually my US editor for this book, which, you know, it was a complete coincidental thing. And he was an incredible writer and artist who understood probably better than anyone else how damaging these tropes are. You know, he used humour to express himself, but he understood the damages that these tropes continue to play and these stereotypes of the continent continue, how that has an impact on on the continent continually. And he understood that a lot of this is played out in popular culture. It's played out in things that we laugh at and things that in dramas. And, you know, he understood that in books and in films, you know, these things spread around so quickly and it, without even realising that we are consuming something that is incredibly political, you know, we, we just assume that, you know, oh, it, you know, it's just a book or it's just a film or it's just the charities, you know, they're raising good money for for people living in, in poverty. He understood that, you know, it's a lot more than that. You know, it's, it's political. And his work, How to Write About Africa, it was just picked perfect. You know, he, he talked about all the all the tropes that we constantly see in literature about kind of the use of suns and the use of trees and and the way in which you know the thorny top flat top acacia yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> and and importantly kind of how african characters are written and it's not just you know this the scenic the scenic depictions of the continent you know those you know those things can be damaging but it, it's how people are written um and how they're written as as Africans and how they constantly seem so confused and they're just waiting for someone else to explain things to them. And they're, and I think that's a thing that a lot of industries have done to the continent. You know, it makes us seem as if we're just sitting around waiting for others to come and help us, to come and explain our own world to us, mm. that we are just helpless all the time. And, you know, how to write about Africa was just, you know, for so many people, for me included, was just such an incredible depiction of the challenges that we continue to face from, you know, the way in which we are treated by popular culture. Mm, which brings us to, to white, white saviorism. Yes. And, I mean, you were talking about charity, so for instance, Live Aid or the, or the Coney documentary. Yes. I mean, there are many, many examples of the Stacey Dooley going off mm-hmm. to, to Africa. And how does one then because I think a lot of this comes from a very good place. Yeah, absolutely. People I, genuinely I want yeah. to help. How does one stop being a white saviour mm-hmm. and do something that is helpful without venturing into that territory? Yeah, I think that, and I mentioned in the book, that first thing I would recommend to anybody is think about how you would act in your own community. You know, poverty is not something that only exists in Africa. You know, it exists 
around, you know, anywhere, wherever you live, people are living in poverty, I guarantee you within a few miles from you, you know, and I think that the first thing you should do is just stop for a moment and think, how would you act in your own communities? You know, the idea that someone in London would, you know, walk into a homeless shelter and start taking photos with people there and post that on their Instagram, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that we, we just would never do here. And I think that that is, that is the important thing to constantly remember, you know, the importance of imagery in how we how we depict the suffering of others. White saviorism isn't so much about this idea that, oh, you know, white people should never volunteer, they should never help, that there's nothing to do. There's, there's plenty of great work that people can do, you know, across the continent. What's important is that it comes from a place where you're not putting yourself at the front and center mm. of the work. It's not about you. It's not about showing what an incredible amount of work that you're doing to help these helpless people. It's taking a moment and going there and trying to understand firstly what has brought about the challenges that that people are going through and then saying or asking people on the ground where can I best serve you know and being willing to do that without getting recognition without being seen without contributing some of the factors that may have caused the problem in the first place mm. and so one you know important thing that I wanted to kind of say in the book is that you know it, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white you know there are opportunities for everybody to help there is there is too much poverty in the world. There's too much suffering. There, there are too much trouble. We all should be committed to trying in whatever ways we can to alleviate some of that suffering. Mm. But the way in which Africa is treated is different to the way in which other countries are treated. You know, there is a lack of humanity. And we, we see that constantly, you know, in the discussions that people have been having recently about Ukrainian refugees and the crisis in Ukraine. That is how people should act towards an on, ongoing crisis. You know, treat people with humanity and understanding and be willing to kind of open your your lives to to see where you can help you know but we've seen a number of news organizations specifically say things like this crisis is different to what we see in Africa or in the Middle East because of you know charity campaigns have made us believe that suffering is normal in Africa yeah. suffering is normal in the Middle East suffering is normal in brown countries you know and that has then led to the way in which we kind of see and the way in which we treat Africa. Um, so I think that, you know, for anybody who wants to, quote unquote, make a difference or wants to help or who wants to better understand the poverty that has hit certain areas of the continent, you know, it, there is room to do that. Just try and think in terms of, do I need to be front and center? Do I need to be the one in all the photos? Understand the conflict that you're that you're maybe wanting to to help alleviate. And then from there, you know, most people on the ground will be able to direct you in the right ways. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look finally at this new struggle for Africa. So we have mm -hmm. both Russia and China, who, as you said, contributed a lot to the struggles for independence, arming, it's certainly in Zimbabwe's side, different factions mm -hmm. within the country. But of course, now there's a huge push for minerals, yes. uh, particularly from China. Yes. We're also seeing a lot of Middle Eastern money coming in uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of influence coming with that too. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, I think what what we're seeing is that a lot of countries still are unsure as to how to build for the future, which is leaving them incredibly vulnerable to outside influences that continue to remain. And I think that what we're seeing is that we still have situations where those who are, you know, leading many of the countries are still attached to the colonial regimes that, that brought the countries about in the first place and the leaders that first led the countries. And so we still have 
in these short histories, incredibly vulnerable nations that within themselves haven't decided how they can operate without their resource, without their minerals. And that has left us, a lot of countries open to Western powers coming in and still fighting over these minerals. And that until a lot of countries really reckon with who they are, reckon with how they want to open themselves up to the rest of the world, they will always be vulnerable to kind of nations Mm. coming in, putting in these investments quickly without kind of knowing at the other end of, you know, what will eventually come from this. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is is the solution, somewhat ironically, a closer binding of these 54 different countries into mm-hmm. one nation, into a, into a closer African union? Yeah, I mean, I sort of end the book basically, you know, positing that question. You know, these countries now need to come together and kind of understand that, look, there's a lot of shared history here. A lot of our struggles, you know, are similar because of the way in which we were created. And so this is a really good opportunity for us to pause for a moment and say, look, why don't we try and pull some knowledge, pull some understanding, try and create some better spot? You know, we, we, we see that in, you know, there's a fairly strong West African Union that can at times, you know, weaken and that can, can be frustrating. But, you know, there is there is more work, I think, going in within uh, West African countries through the economic community of West African states organization that tries to kind of bring that relationship and that history together. And a lot of younger people, you know, we're in a world at the moment where, you know, certain people want to put up more and more borders and want to kind of separate who us are and who they are. And we're in an interconnected world. The Internet's not going anywhere. The idea that we can simply just put up borders around ourselves, put up big walls and restrict us from from others isn't something that is likely to last for very long. Um, And I think there is a really, really great opportunity, especially among sort of young people from across the continent who have a lot of shared interests in in music and art and fashion to say, you know, that we are we are one out of many. And each country has an opportunity to to look outward and say, you know, how can we all from our experiences come together to say, look, what has worked for you in dealing with the internal ethnic strifes that were created by the colonial powers? Here's what hasn't worked for us. Let's try and build that understanding as we move away from a certain generation of leaders who who you know were somewhat adjacent to the colonial to the independence fight mm. and those who who feel like it's still their right to rule the country a lot of them who fought you know the the first batch of dictators to kind of bring about democracy in their countries you know as we move further away from those who feel a sort of a desperation to rule the country i think there are lots of opportunities for younger generations to think more in terms of more democratically, to to push away from that singular fight for one voice, to all come together as a community to say, you know, look, how can we face the future together in some way that is productive, both for ourselves as nations, but also for the wider continent. Africa is Not a Country by Deepo Falayun is published by Vintage Penguin Random House, and it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull, I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.